Let's pray. As the band has just played, dear God, my Lord, what a morning. My Lord, what a morning. My Lord, what a morning. When the stars begin to fall. When those stars fall one last time, we will know the hour, the hour of our Lord's return. As we plunge into a brand new mini-series in this university congregation, ignite our time, open our minds, address our hearts, let the teaching be clear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I share with you a stunning prediction about what might lie ahead for this nation economically and politically, a prediction made by the influential billionaire George Soros, I want to read in your hearing. We're not going to put the words on the screen. I want to read what one author has called the most fearful threatening ever addressed to mortals. And I'd love it if you'd join with me. We're not putting anything on the screen. But open your, uh, your electronic device, if that's where you have your Bible, you have your worship Bible with you, to Revelation chapter 14. You didn't bring a Bible. Track this one. Please track this one. Take the Pew Bible. It'll be page 830 in the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 14. I want to read these words with you. I'm in the New King James Version, whatever translation you have. I'm just glad you have one. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Then, verse 8, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. One more verse, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Three angels, one warning, a brand new miniseries that begins right now. And you've got to admit, this is pretty somber. This is pretty, pretty somber material. Absolutely is. You know why? Because we are living in extremely somber times. You and I just finished a miniseries, The Dark Knight Rises. Part two, we examine the nation's economy in this, in this stage of meltdown. I don't care what the politicians are trying to convince you of. We are in a meltdown and so my eye was caught by the headline that my young friend Sean Brace sent to me. He's a pastor in the uh, New England region of this nation. It's an interview with George Soros. You say, who's George Soros? He's an influential activist billionaire. Made his billions 
by betting on currency in the stock markets of the world. So TheBeast.com, TheDailyBeast.com and Newsweek Magazine sit down with Soros. I want to give you one line from that four, five-page interview. I'll put it on the screen for you. So they mix up the report with the actual words of Soros. We'll get to them in just a moment. While Soros is currently focused on Europe, he's quick to claim that economic and social divisions in the United States and the U.S. will deepen, too. As anger rises, now this is his prediction, riots on the streets of American cities are inevitable. The response to the unrest could be more damaging than the violence itself. Now here's, I thought that was a provocative line. Now it's quoting him, it will be an excuse, he says, for cracking down and using strong arm tactics to maintain law and order, which carry to an extreme, could bring about a repressive political system, a society where individual liberty is much more constrained, which would be a break with the tradition of the United States, end quote. Ever heard of that scenario before? Me too. Not at all, by the way, unlike the setting for the three angels with their one warning, issuing this urgent appeal from God to the human civilization to prepare for the return of Christ. How do we know that, this is, that these three angels are immediately before the return of Christ? I'll show you why we know. I want you to look at this, uh, this window right over my head here. We call it the rose window here at Pioneer. That's our stained glass window. It's the only church on earth, I predict, that has that picture on it. What's, the pic what's it a picture of? It's a depiction of the very next verse after the three angels' messages here in Revelation chapter 14. Christ, crown, sickle, cloud. It's the return of Christ. Just look at verse 14. We just read uh, up to verse 14. Here's verse 14. Then I looked. You can look, take a peek at that window as well. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So what's up with that? Clearly, the three angels, with their one warning, immediately precede the return of Christ. Three angels with their warning. The world responds. Christ returns. Finis. Boom, boom, boom. So whatever the three angels are all about, they are certainly about the divine endgame of human history. I wish you'd write that point down right now. That's a critical point that we need to lock away as we begin this mini-series together. Grab your uh, worship study guide. It should be in your bulletin. Pull it out, please. And let's get that point down. Ushers, thank you for your always being speedy and on the spot. Guys, if we can uh, please right now put in everybody's hand. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up and we'd like to put one of these. I think this one's a keeper. I have the Soros quote in there, by the way, for you to share. Up in the balcony as well. Good. And those of you who are watching on live stream right now, you're watching on television, anywhere on earth, we're delighted to have you today. I want to put our website on the screen because I'd like you to have this study guide too. Let's put it on your screen. You see it right there. Charismatic Confusion. That's part one of this little mini-series. Charismatic Confusion. By the way, don't miss next week, Babylonian Confusion. And just before the presidential election, American Confusion. Angel one, angel two, angel three. We'll get to those. Charismatic Confusion. You see, it's, it's awfully small. You see the website there, www.pmchurch.tv. If you go to that website, you're looking for Three Angels, One Warning. That's the miniseries title. Click on the Charismatic Confusion. You'll have the study guide, and you can track it with us.
So you have the study guides, everybody have them? Good. Okay. All right, let's go. So George Soros says, hey, this is what it's going to look like in this nation. He may be closer to the truth than we all realize. Because the three angels in one warning context describes a very similar depiction. So here's the line. Whatever these three angels are about, jot this down, please, in your study guide. Whatever these three angels are about, they are very much an urgent appeal on the eve of the divine endgame of human history. This is endgame time. This is endgame time, and the three angels are critical to that divine endgame. Which, by the way, just keep your pen moving. By the way, if you wanted to tweet the mission and the message of this community of faith I belong to called the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you would like to tweet it in one line, you can do it. Very simple. First, you will put the name Jesus, then the symbol for and, and then Rev 14, colon, 6-12. I tweeted it last night to all my friends. That's the message and the mission because he, Jesus, is the crimson heart of the strategic endgame. And the message right here, angel one, angel two, angel three, our raison d'etre, our reason for existence as a community of faith, Andrews University exists only for this reason, only for this reason. This is why we exist. So let's today just focus on angel number one. Let's go. Angel number one, chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Hold it right there. Do you know who that angel is? Guess what? It's probably you. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. You can't prove that. Sure can. Put the next line on the screen, please. The Greek here for angel is angelos. Los angelos. The city of what? City of angels, Spanish and Greek. Very close in this case. The Greek word for angel is angelos, and it can also be translated messenger. Go either way. The translator has to decide what's it in this, in this context. Guess who else was called an angel? Not just you. Guess who else? Let's put this up. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaking, verses 7 and 10. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John the Baptist. All right? So Jesus is speaking about John. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my angelos. I send my angel. No, I send my messenger. I send my messenger, write that in, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Of course, the three angels are depicted as angels, but clearly, keep your pen moving, the three angels are an apocalyptic symbol of human messengers just like you, just like me, who go out into the world, go out to our friends and neighbors, go out to the furthest reaches of the planet with the urgent appeal of Revelation 14. All right? So here's the first angel. Then I saw another angel flying. By the way, did you notice that? Flying in the midst of heaven. When I go out running, I get one of these, oh, I got to get home and tell Karen about this moment occasions. And you know when it is? When you run under the moon and the stars. There's nothing like running under the moon and the stars. And when you run at 6.30 in the morning, that's what you have now, moon and stars. And when you see, when you see a silver streak, of a shooting star. I mean, that just takes your breath away. I tell you what, I think I hear them when they go over. <laughs> you don't believe me, do you? What's the point of that silver streak? The point is it's not a tortoise. It's illustrating the speed, the absolute speed you say, what's the big hurry? Well, the big hurry is the world's about to end. That's why this message has to go out in this generation to 7 billion people. Let's go. 
I saw the first angel. As I go here, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. What's the everlasting gospel? Come on. Oh, what's the Greek word is you, eu. That's good. Angelion. Hey, by the way, same word as angelos. Good message. The everlasting gospel is the good message about our Lord Jesus Christ, His life, death, resurrection, and soon coming. In fact, you can summarize, and I love this. Anytime I can find an excuse to put this text on, this, on this screen, I do it. First Timothy, Paul's words, chapter 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is the everlasting gospel summarized in one sentence. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The worst. I'm the worst. That's the gospel. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. <sighs> and I saw another angel. Verse 6 again. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Got a hundred nations right here at Andrews University. That's why. Saying, the angel now saying with a loud voice, by the way, in the Greek, megalephone. From whence comes our English word, megaphone. This is not a whisper. This is not a, yo, this is huge. It's loud. I heard him say with a loud, with a megaphone voice, here it comes, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Did you know that the divine end game of human history is all about worship. Did you know that? In fact, jot this down, will you? Eight times in the context for the three angels, that would be chapter 13 and chapter 14, eight times the word worship is used. This afternoon, I did this with my yellow highlighter. I went and highlighted them all. When you get home, do that in your Bible. You have all the references right there. Eight of them. Seven of them have to do with this beast. Who's this beast? Don't miss next week. Seven of them have to do with the beast. One has to do with the Creator. We just read it in Revelation 14, verse 7. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. Please get it. God's endgame will not be an economic endgame, although the meltdown of the global economy will likely precipitate it. God's endgame will neither be a political endgame, although national and global politics will facilitate it. What will it be? Jot it down. God's endgame will position the issue of creator, worship, front and center for the entire human race before the end. That's his endgame. On a planet ruled by Charles Darwin and his, and his philosophy called naturalism, there'll be one last burst of supernaturalism. Come to the creator. Come back while there's time because the creator's coming back. That's the end game. Verse 7, read the message again one more time. And he says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Three imperatives. Take these three. Take these three imperatives, and if you put them together, the composite of these three imperatives. You know what an imperative is, don't you? You've already finished freshman comp. An imperative is what? It's a command. Three commands. Jot them down. Three commands, the composite of which is a definition of authentic worship before God. All right, let's go. Number one, jot it down. Fear, and I put a little slash there, revere, because it could be translated both. Fear, revere the God of eternity. 
Fear. Oh, I don't like that word. I don't like that word. Why? Can we find another word? No, nope, that's the word. You remember the 80-year-old shepherd? He'd given up. He says, my life is over. I'm 80 years old. I've been shepherding all my life. There's no future for me. That 80-year-old shepherd with his bang sheep is out in the wilderness of Midian. This man, he, he says, I can't, oh, no, that, no, that can't be. He looks, the bush is burning. It's hot with orange flame, but it's still green. There's no brown, there's no, there's no ash, no black. It's just green. He says, this is crazy. He takes his little shepherd's rod, and he's just about to shove it. When a voice comes booming out of that bush, you remember, what, you, remember, you remember how Moses responded? Let's put it on the screen. Exodus chapter 3. Then this voice out of the crackling, roaring, burning bush, this voice said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Fear God. That's how it works. When you realize you're in God's presence. Now, if you don't think God is there, trust me, anything goes. But when you believe God is there, there's just this, 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 this fear. You say, ah, oh, Dwight. It wouldn't be that way. It, 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 that, that's just an aberration. No, it's not an aberration. God shows up to Isaiah. Isaiah goes to chapel one day on a Thursday. He goes to chapel. And suddenly, boom, the walls fall. The, the, the ceiling lifts up. And in smoke, there's this resplendent throne. And God is sit, sitting on the throne. And the angels are chanting, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. We sang that just a moment ago. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The angels are singing. And Isaiah says, yeah, I looked up. And he says, I just, I just panicked. I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It happens anywhere. It can happen in chapel, even chapel at Andrews University. If your mind and heart are open to it, it's not just an aberration. Moses at the burning bush. By the way, Peter, he said, well, that's just an Old Testament experience. That doesn't happen in the New Testament because we're all really close to Jesus in the New Testament and we're just friends. Wrong. Peter has fished all night, caught nothing. Jesus says, hey, let's go out and go fishing. Peter says, we, we never fish in the morning. He says, I'm telling you, go fishing. He says, all right, if that's what you wish, they throw the nets in. You remember that story in Luke 5? Pull them in. That boat is sinking. It has so many slimy, slithery fish in it. You know what Peter does? Peter falls at the feet of Jesus. And do you know what he says? Luke 5, verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is, when you know you're in the presence of divinity, you're not popping your bubble gum. You recognize where you are. You say, well, Dwight, when you get to heaven, it's not going to be like that. I'm telling you, when you get to heaven, it's going to be just hunky-dory. It's going to be hunky-dory, but let me also share with you what it's going to be like in heaven. The human representatives of this race are called the elders in the apocalypse. Let me run just like this. We'll run uh, the pictures of the elders in heaven. What is this? This first one is uh, chapter 4. So you're, you're here in 14. It's not going to take a lot of energy to turn a few pages back. Revelation chapter 4, pick it up in verse 10. And the 24 elders, okay, here the human rep representatives in the throne room of God, and the 24 elders fall down before him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, verse 11, you are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you are the creator. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. When you're in the presence of the creator, you fall down. Isn't that amazing? Even in heaven when you're not a sinner any longer. 
What's the next one? 5-8. So you just, you're right there. 5, chapter 8. Now when he, the Lamb, code language in the apocalypse for the risen Christ of Calvary, and now when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Down on their faces again. Go to the end of that chapter. That would be uh, what? That would be verse 14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Humans in the presence of God back on their faces. Oh, let's see. Is that uh, chapter 11? So just go a few pages over to chapter 11. Apparently, the reaction to God's presence in heaven is the same as it was the, on those who were granted a vision of Him on earth. This would be, uh, what, what would this be? This would be 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped. See, this is all associated with worship. And worshiped God, saying, verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. One more picture of the elders. This is in chapter 19. Now, take a look at this. Chapter 19, what is this? Verse 4. 19, verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. That's where those, those worship words that we use today came from. Amen, Alleluia. They came from the throne room in heaven. Fallen humans fall before him. Saved and redeemed sinless humans fall before him. What a, what a dramatic contrast with the third millennium generation that we are a part of. I mean, this, there, there is no fear of God on this planet. Sometimes I just blush. I mean, you're sitting there texting, and the guy does a slam dunk in the basketball, basketball and you say, OMG! What's OMG mean? Oh, I just came from a wonderful restaurant where I had this blueberry pie. OMG! What's so OMG about blueberry pie? I just got the good news. I just read your email. OMG! I mean, please. We've got God showing up all over the place, and he's never somebody to reverence. He's never somebody to worship. Jeez, did you see that? Why are you saying Jeez? It's the first syllable of Jesus' name. That's all it is. Just so that it, you avoid having to look like you're taking the name of the Lord in vain, just use the first syllable. Why would you do that? There's no, there's no fear of God. There's no reverence for God on this planet. I'm embarrassed for the human race. So, well, Dwight, are we supposed to be scared spitless of God? Is that the, is that the idea? Scared spitless? No. In fact, would you jot this down, please? When, when, when the Bible calls us to fear God, it's not saying, it, it's essentially saying, don't be afraid of God in your heart but fear him and revere him in your mind. It's an intellectual experience. It's not emotional. Well, I'm, 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 it's not that. When the Bible talks about revering God, it's this sense of the awe. In fact, while we were singing this this morning, I grabbed my pen. Awestruck, we fall at our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are an amazing God. I'm on my knees because I'm awestruck. Fear God. All right, there are three imperatives. Imperative number one, fear slash revere the God of creation. Imperative number two, jot it down, will you please? Glorify slash honor the God of judgment. The hour of his judgment has come. We're in it right now. That's all I'm going to say. Glorify him. What's it mean to glorify him? Glorify God is to praise the one who doesn't treat us the way we deserve. 
Moses, Peter, Isaiah did not deserve to be treated that way. They, are ranks, they were rank sinners like you and me, like we are, but he treats us rather the way he deserves. All right, here's the third imperative, worship. Worship slash obey the God of creation. By the way, that word worship, listen to this. Here's what it literally means. The word worship in Greek, it means to bow down, to kiss someone's feet or the garment hem or the ground in front of him. In other words, get this. Worship is not high-fiving God. It is low-fiving God on your face. Too much of religion today among the young in my community of faith. You go, God, what a God you are. Like he's the kid next door. Are you kidding? The redeemed go to their faces before him. We got some, we got, we got some wrong pictures, apparently. Worship him who made heaven and earth. I mean, what kind of God is this that we worship? Hey, you remember this story? Remember the two brothers? So God says, hey, guys, I want you to worship me. Today's the worship day. I want you to come. So the... The two brothers come. They build a little altar side by side. There, there's rocks. One brother says, oh, what was it you wanted for worship, God? Okay, put it on that altar. The other brother said, you know what? I'm going to do it my way. I know what I like. And so he brings a beautiful cornucopia of succulent, still dew-kissed fruit. And he puts it on the, puts it, all right, God. Now we both bow down and worship. And they both bow down. Fire comes. Only one of the altars is smoldering. Guess whose altar it was? Abel's, not Cain's. What's going on here? Put, let's put that uh, up there on the screen, Genesis 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Hey, God, I mean, look at it. I love this fruit. God loves fruit. Come on, God loves fruit. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell, and he killed his brother. The first worship debate in history. Killed his brother over it. Just because, would you write this down? Just because... This is the way you like worship doesn't make it the right worship. Come on, Dwight, this is the way I like it. So we're going to do it this way. You can't do it. That, that, that was Cain's whole point. You can't do it. John T. Anderson, in his powerful and provocative new book, Three Angels, One Message, read it this summer. John T. Anderson puts it this way. You can get the book. You'll be blessed if you read it. Let me put the sentence on the screen for you. When we examine the Scriptures, it becomes clear that obedience, write the word in, please, obedience is the highest form of worship and that without it, all worship is meaningless. Well, you know what, Dwight? I don't like worship that doesn't have my kind of music. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Anderson writing here, at the name of Jehovah, angels fold their wings. But worship styles today often reflect a, a similar casualness from worship community to worship community, with worship teams dressing in attire more appropriate for the beach than for the house of the Lord. This attempt to bring God down to us does not reflect the honor and respect that the sovereign of the universe is due. Worship does not bring him down to us. It raises us up to him. 
Should worshipers today confront the awesome majesty of the divine, they would make haste to cover their faces and repent of their cavalier demeanor. Whew. That's pretty serious. It's not what I like. I got to have what I like. If I like it, it's good. If I don't like it, it's bad. Are you serious? You have become the great determiner of the value of worship? Does God get a vote? Now, you know what, Dwight, besides, when I want to have a day of worship, I'll pick the day of worship that's most convenient for me. Do you understand that? I pick the day. Don't you tell me what day it is. I will pick the day that works for me. Oh, really? Read Anderson some more. The biblical summons to worship him who made, in other words, the creator God, must include a call to return to the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath. Instituted at creation, the seventh-day Sabbath is embedded in the Ten Commandments, written, as you remember, by God's own finger, in an age that presents evolution as the explanation of how life began. There is to be a clear and decisive appeal to return to the understanding of God as creator and to observe the only day that Scripture identifies identifies as being sanctified and blessed. Only one. His, mem his memorial of creatorship, the seventh-day Sabbath. So here comes this kid named Patrick Knighton. They say, we're going to have graduation. Sorry, too many snow days. We're having graduation. You're okay. I heard some people sitting behind me this morning saying, well, they're just like the Adventists. We have graduation on, on Sabbath. No, we do not. We have a worship service on Sabbath not graduation. It's called baccalaureate. It's where you worship the living God. Patrick had to make a decision. You heard the interview. I'm proud of that young adult for being unequivocating. I stand right here. There will be a generation at the end of time just like that who's saying, no compromise. <laughs> I'm not going to do what's convenient, gets me off the hook. That is the appeal of this first angel. Wow. So whether it's the day of worship or the way of worship, to worship is to obey the Creator. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, compelling, three compelling imperatives in the first angel's message, three of them, personally crafted by God for a world at the end of time. The divine endgame has these three imperatives in it. By the way, personally crafted, uh, crafted by God for a world living with charismatic confusion today. You know what's going on in the... I, I, I study worship trends. I have to. It's part of my, my uh, calling. But I, so I read the literature, read the literature. You know what the big, the, the hottest thing today is? How can we worship like the guys down the street? Let's find the biggest churches in America, find out how they worship, and we will do the same because that's obviously how you get to be a big church. Give them what they want. Give them what they like to hear. Give them what they like to wear. Give them what they like to do. You'll get them that way. Read a piece in Wall Street Journal under the column, Houses of Worship, written by a 27-year-old evangelical named Brent McCracken. Title of this essay, The Perils of Wannabe Cool Christianity. You know what he does? He effectively eviscerates all of this, trying to be like everybody else. The big church... The big church down the road does it, so that's why we do it. Really? Since when was it the call of the friends of God to be like everybody else? I thought this was about fear God and give glory to Him so that you know you're, you're actually in a worship service right now. 
reverence him, bow down. In this little piece, he includes a quotation. I want you to see this from a, a gentleman named David Wells, the title of David Wells' book, The Courage to be Protestant. Let me put it on the screen for you. The born-again marketing church today has calculated that unless it makes deep, serious cultural adaptations, we've got to be like the culture, it will go out of business, especially with the younger generation. What it has not considered carefully enough is that it may well be putting itself out of business with God. Who are we trying to follow? Who's setting the agenda for worship? Culture or the Creator? It's that simple. Charismatic worship confusion. Just because it's done out there doesn't mean it has to be done in here. So may I ask you a very personal question? Okay, okay, okay. How do you worship? How do we worship? We who are rather pleased that we have the day, the day of worship down pat, how are we with the way of worship? If you stepped into our chapels on a Thursday in this sanctuary, what kind of worship would you find here? If you stepped into our dormitory worships, if you stepped into our family worships at home, what kind of worship would you find there? If you stepped into the New Life worship service on a Sabbath, if you stepped into the One Place worship service on a Sabbath, if you stepped into the Pioneer Worship Service on a Sabbath, what would you find there? What would you find here? How do we worship on this campus? How much fear and reverence of God is there when we gather to worship? Or are our earplugs effectively shutting us off from any tangible communion with the Creator? Does an open book on my lap, does an open laptop, does a smartphone text away any real encounter with the eternal and the holy God? Do our chit-chats under our breath, back and forth, back and forth, do they effectively short-circuit any Holy Spirit conversation with our minds, let alone our hearts, and end up doing the same for everybody sitting behind me and everybody sitting in front of me? Who cares? It's just the two of us. Really? Worship is just the two of you? Where's God in this thing? Worship isn't about getting credit. It's about getting close to the Creator. I want to talk to you as a worship leader. How do we lead? I'm talking to myself. How do we lead on this campus since it's our responsibility? These chapels, these vespers, these dorm worships, these Sabbath mornings, how do you lead, worship leader? In other words, how much of the fear and reverence of God is conveyed through your emotions, through your music, through your words in front of the gathered worshipers? Does the way you dress give any clue to your conception of the status of God into whose presence you are leading a whole gathering of worshipers? Are you telling me? Look, look, come on, come on. Let me just put it this way. If you had a personal appointment with President Obama on a Thursday morning or even a Sabbath morning, are you telling me you would dress with that T-shirt and those worn and too tight jeans? That's how you would meet the President of the United States? Well, it's just our culture. He'll have to take it or leave it. Really? And what about the music that you plan for worship? What about the sermon you preach for worship? 
Who gets the glory and the attention when you and the praise band are done, when you step out of that pulpit, when you step away from that organ? Who gets the praise and the glory? You, me, God. Do I worship God in his way, Abel, or do I worship God in my way, Cain? I've probably just succeeded in stepping on everybody's toes. <laughs> but if we are living at the end of time, now please listen, if we are living at the end of time, and if we are serious about this urgent warning to fear God, give glory to Him and bow down and worship the Creator, and if it really is our mission to tell the world, the people of earth, the truth not only about the day of worship but also the way of worship, then wouldn't we, of all people on earth, wouldn't we seek to maximize the divine human encounter that corporate collective worship represents? Why wouldn't we be the most influential, the most passionate worshipers on earth? rather than trying to be like everybody else. So let me conclude with these. Seven short suggestions to maximize your, your personal, your, 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 your public worship experience. Number one, just jot them down, please. Number one, it's the Gospels Plus. There's been a lot of emphasis on this campus for the Gospels, and I praise God for that emphasis. But the God who inspired the four has 62 more where they came from. And it's the 62 more that really expand an understanding of collective and corporate worship. It's the wider picture that inspires deeper worship. Number two, immerse yourself in the Psalms, these inspired prayers and hymns. I read a psalm a day. Just a psalm a day. Get used, get, become familiar with the worship literature. Number three, pray with your face to the ground. You say, what's up with that? Dwight, I'm not saying every time you pray, but particularly when you're alone. Pray with your face to the ground. Let your prayer posture reflect your personal awe in God's presence. If they're going to their faces in heaven and they went to their faces when they were in His presence on earth, maybe it's okay to go to our faces still. Put your face in the rug and then pray. Number five, no, number four, pray when you enter worship space. Whether it's chapel, dormitory, family worship, wherever, pray when you enter worship space. You may not be able to change what is going on up front, but you can change what is happening inside. I learned this from the Japanese. The first thing the Japanese do when they get to the pew, wherever they're sitting in the church, they just, they're praying. They're saying, God, take this moment, maximize it. Let me hear you. I try to do the same. Why? I'm just opening my heart. Number five, learn the classic hymns. I love praise music. We do it very well on this campus, by the way, and I'm always blessed. But don't sell yourself, your soul short by omitting some of the majestic hymns of the Christian tradition that have been with us for centuries. Go to your app store and download the app SDA Hymnal. Just put it there. You can do, some of them play the music, but you can just read the words. Friday nights for our worship at home, Karen and I just working our way through the end. We're just singing hymns we don't know, but great classics. Come on. Number six, don't be afraid of traditional worship. I, I just need to assure you this, and I, I think you probably know this, but what you experience here at Andrews University is not the norm for the world. You won't find anything like New Life or One Place or Pioneer out there when you leave. This is an aberration. This is unusual. Get used, therefore. Get used 
to traditional worship. You're going to be in a church that practices traditional worship. If you say, well, you're not doing like, a, like you did at Andrews, so I'm not going to church anymore at all. That would be a huge robbery of your own soul. Get used to traditional worship. And by the way, when you go to a little church, say, hey, pastor, I want to, can I help out with the worship planning? Just be a part of it. And finally, number seven, remember, worship isn't what you take, it's what you give. What am I going to get out of chapel this week? What am I going to get out of chapel right now? What am I going to get out of worship right now? No, 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 that's the wrong question. It's not what you get out of, it's what you give to. Come prepared to give. And I want to promise you something. When you go home, some of the choicest blessings of heaven will go home with you. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. So I'd like to appeal to you to join me right now in letting worship renewal begin. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Would you take out your little connect card? We'll conclude with this. Your little connect card. It's in your worship bulletin. Take out your connect card. Thank you for putting your name and your email address so that it's legible. If you want some material, you may get that material. just need to be able to send it to you. Turn the card over. We call this the My Next Step Today side of the card. Here are three suggestions for our next steps. One thing to hear the teaching. It's another, okay, so how should we live? Suggestion number one, I want, to I want to implement these seven steps to maximize my corporate worship experience. Okay, I keep my study guide with me. Yeah, Dwight, I'd like to try that. I'll do it. I'll do it. You, you do it, I'll, I'll, I'll join you. All right. Let's put a little check mark there. I want to implement these seven steps to maximize my worship experience. Here's, a, here's the second box. I will join you in praying that God will revive collective worship in this community. You're, well, I, you're not on this campus. You're somewhere in the world. You have a community. Why don't you join? Why don't we join together in saying, God, just revive worship. Just revive it according to your will. Just revive our worship experience. I'll join you in that, Dwight. And, and here's the third one. I would like to invite someone else to come with me and worship God on Sabbath. It's one thing to go. It's one thing to worship. But you know, when you bring somebody with you, you're suddenly more sensitive about everything that's happening. Why? Because I got a friend with me. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, what, what's happening? What's he thinking? What's she thinking? I'd like to invite someone else to come with me and worship God on Sabbath. The end game appeal is and worship him. I'd like to pray. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pray for, for our decisions. By the way, the ushers are about to come our way and we'll put uh, these cards, these connect cards in the offering plate. But I'd like to pray that God would honor our decisions, tuck them in our minds. Dear God, that's what we ask. <laughs> Obviously, worship is huge. It's what heaven does in your presence. It's what your earth children do down here below. And you know our hearts. Every single one of us wants to do it right. And so here's our prayer. Take our hearts, take our desire, and shape it into that, that worship encounter with you that will reflect your awesome, 